Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a truly brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by lawyer and activist Monica Ramirez, where I ask her, what does justice look like for farm workers? Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm so excited for our guest this week. Welcome, Monica Ramirez, who is the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Women. She is also one of the organizers behind Healing Voices, a new mental health initiative for farm workers. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here. Um, I'm trying to do this like fierce thing where like I don't compliment people on like physical appearances so much because I'm trying to be like 2021 and everything. But this (laughs) gorgeous purple you're wearing today, I would I can't. uh, It's just you're giving me these colors today and your background is like super pretty on your wall. So I just had to give you I had to. I'm sorry. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I, I appreciate the love for my wall because these are some of the clients I represented and some of my role models. So all the love accepted. Okay, so I'm taking a a hard right turn really quick because you just said some of the folks that you've represented. Does that make you like a stunning lawyer? I am, in fact, a stunning lawyer. Thank you. I love multifaceted queen. Yes. (laughs) So really part of what our, you know, framing question for today is, is how are farm workers protected in the United States? Who are farm workers? What's what is going on? I think that's something that we we eat food, like all of us, you know, we go to eat food, we go to the grocery store, but I just started gardening last year. And I think my whole like worldview kind of like, like it changed when I started growing food. Cause it's, it's just such a thing. And then it's like, well, where did all this other food come from? So it's, <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of how it started. So can, my first question is, is can you give us a, a brief history of what farm work in the United States has looked like? Yeah, so thank you for being curious about food and who brings it to our tables, because actually I think not enough people are curious about that question. And that's part of the reason why farm workers in our country have experienced a lot of the hardships that they've experienced. Um, So when we talk about the history of farm workers in the U.S. and we're thinking like way, way way back, you know, in the U.S. in in the 1800s, we had lots of small farmers. And so um, we had family farms where people were growing food and in um, harvesting that food themselves. And, um, you know, in the deep South, we also had slaves who were, um, you know, tending to the crops in the fields. Um, And over time, um, farming in our country has changed greatly in that it has become um, industrialized. There are larger farms and we've seen a need for workers to be brought in from other countries. Like, you know, around World War I, uh, farm workers were brought in from China, Japan, and Mexico. Mexico because there weren't enough workers domestically to work here. And then we saw um, many farm workers being repatriated to their country after um, soldiers came back from the war. And then again, we saw farm workers being brought in as a part of the Bracero program from Mexico. So in the United States, the history of farming is one that has always actually been um, a combination of small farmers growing their own food, having family farms, and a reliance on immigrant workers and who are needed to do um, the agricultural work, as well as because of the fact that um, agriculture in our country has not ever been compensated the way that it should. The conditions have always been bad. We've historically seen um, poor people, black and white workers across our country are also engaged in agricultural work. So there's there's this domestic workforce that's been historically engaged plus immigrants. And it's been one um, that across across time, it's been one where the conditions have never been great and, and workers have never been fully protected in the way that they need to be protected. So World War One and World War Two, is that was that because like all of the like young, I'm air quoting my fingers here, like all the young men had to go overseas and fight these wars. And so then those people that were historically working these farms in the early 19, well, yeah, the early 1900s and then like the mid 1900s, were these immigrants who were brought in from China and Japan and Mexico, were they treated badly in the, re, in the repeat? Like that doesn't seem fair that they came here and helped feed everyone and helped work the land. And then they were like, okay, bye. Like, yeah. was there, was that like, I'm just That's learning more happened. about it. It was, they, and they weren't nice. Like the American government like wasn't cool and didn't like offer incentives. I'm guessing. 
No, I mean, they were sent back home. And um, so that's why in in our country, we have this um, this desire and need for immigrant workers. And when we need them, we bring them. And when we don't need them, we dispose of them. And that might mean sending them back to their countries, or that might mean creating conditions that are so terrible that essentially they're treated as disposable people. And so we've seen that over and over again. And the Bracero program, which was created um, around World War II, that actually continued into the 60s. So, you know, the 1940s to the 1960s. Um, and then from there, um, that many Mexican um, Mexican workers were brought on the Bracero program. And from there, there was the creation of something called the H-2A program eventually, which is the current day guest worker program. You know, in the 80s, there, there was a change to our immigration law. And so many of the workers who had worked as Bracero workers and had worked um, before this bill was passed called IRCA, Immigration Reform and Control Act, they were able to apply for uh, immigration status in the US. And so there are many um, people who are from our community. I'm from the farm worker community. So there are many people from our community whose families were able to stay in the US and eventually become US citizens because they legalized under the IRCA program in the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, I got it. So who has historically done this? We kind of mentioned it, but... uh, who has historically done this farm work and what has this work entailed? Well, so historically, you know, agricultural work in our country is done by um, family workers on family farms. Um, you know, so think small farm in a, in a rural community and, and the whole family's working in the fields, children, parents, et cetera. Um, and for generations, you know, some farms have existed in our country for generations. But then we also have... Um, immigrant workers who've been brought in. I also want to give a lot of love to the indigenous community because native peoples have been um, tending the fields and caring for our earth from the beginning of time in this country. And um, native American people have continued to work in agriculture over time. They're a much smaller percentage, um, but they, but there are native American agricultural workers as well today. Um, there are about two to three million farm workers in our country. The majority are Mexican or Mexican-American. Um, it's really difficult to get good data on agricultural workers because of the nature of the work. Um, you know, we have workers who are migrating um, across country from state to state to pick crop. So we have workers who are seasonal, who are staying in the same place year round and working in the fields. And then guest workers who are coming in. So um, there's not one type of farm worker in our country. The the context changes. But but the data we do have says that there are two to three million farm workers and about a million of those workers are women. Um, There are also about half million farm workers in our country who are children. And Jonathan, Mm. I think that most people don't actually realize that child farm workers are um, we have the youngest uh, child workers in our country are working in agriculture. So by law, without restriction, still today, children can work in the fields as of the age of 12. Um, so there are about half a million kids that we know of um, per the data that are working in agriculture. But we also know that there are kids who are working much younger. Like my father started working in the fields when he was eight years old picking cotton. Um, and we see that all over the country that there are little kids who are out in the fields. Um, and in particular during COVID, when schools closed, uh, we saw more children who are out in the fields working alongside their families. So what part, where in the United States has a lot of this, like where it does now and where has it, where has this farm work taken place? Yeah. So, you know, people think of California as the main place where there are farm workers working. And um, it is true that farm workers number about a million um, concentrated in California. However, um, Texas, Oregon, Florida, those have also been states with large populations of farm workers. Uh, But it's also really important for people to recognize that there are farm workers all across the country. There are farm workers in Puerto Rico who are working um, in the land. So we want to make sure that people also understand that when we're talking about addressing the issues that relate to farm workers, it isn't only 
focused on a couple of places. It's throughout our country. And as you said at the beginning, to the extent that we all eat, it's something that we should care about across our nation, not just in a few places or, you know, and we certainly shouldn't think that it's only California, Texas, and Florida that need to be mindful about how workers are being treated. It's all across the country where we need to see reforms. Even in like, because I think I'm, I remember reading in the news and just hearing about like, I think there's like seasonal workers that come into like Illinois and Iowa and Missouri and like work on, because there's so much like cornfields and soybean fields and all sorts That's of stuff right. that, that we have. And then is there a, just, is there a difference between like a farm worker and a farm that is only raising like fruit and vegetable versus like livestock? Or is that all in the same thing? Yeah. So great question. So yes, there are workers who are going to Illinois to decastle corn and they're going to Iowa to work in the fields as well. In Iowa, there are actually a lot of farm workers who are working in egg factories. Um, So who are farm workers in our country is an important question because people, because working in the fields is one type of agriculture, right? Picking and planting crops, that's one kind of work. Um, But there are workers who are working in packing sheds. So they're packing the fruits and vegetables. There are workers who are working in dairy farms. Those are farm workers. And there are also meat workers um, who are working um, with livestock. So it isn't, we have to be really careful to not only think of farm workers as those who are working in fruits and vegetables. The other group of workers that I think people probably don't often consider farm workers are those who are working in nurseries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at Mother's Day, when we're getting those beautiful bouquets of flowers and we see that green fernery that's with those flowers. There are fern workers in Florida. There are women who are working, mainly women, when they cut those uh, ferns, they are getting paid about 25 cents a bunch to cut those ferns and eventually make it into those flowers that we're buying. So, you know, we just have to remember that farm workers are in fields, they're in packing sheds, they're in dairy farms, they're working in nurseries, and together they comprise the agricultural workforce of our country. So, Then one thing I think about is like protections. Like when I think about I'm a cosmetologist, there's lots of things that like a client can do. Like if you get color in someone's eye or if like you see another hairdresser do something like there, like there's a board of cosmetology, like there is oversight. There's a lot of like protections. There's a lot of regulation. There is also when I think about like lots of different fields, there's like HR, there's like protections, there's like things that are put in place so that like, you know, work like people aren't being taken advantage of. In, in whatever situation they're working in. I think when we think about, especially when we think about the existence of enslaved people in the South that were doing this work, like, you know, literally for free. And then even now, right. is there, is there people who are in mass incarceration now that have to do farm work? Like under that idea that like, you know, you're the only way that slavery is legal in the United States is if you've been convicted of a felony. So do they have like state governments that have like incarcerated people doing farm work for free? We've seen that. We've seen states that have tried that. You know, certainly um, I recall in Georgia, that was a program that had been um, put into place and it didn't work. Um, Unfortunately, you know, when we think about the protections of farm workers, I actually feel like it's important to talk about the just the lack of protections because um, one of the reasons that farm workers still don't have some of the most basic protections that other workers have is because of racism. So when the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed over 80 years ago, which employment attorneys, we call it FLSA, F-L-S-A, the FLSA, that is the basic employment law that protects all workers in our country. So that's what allows us to have minimum wage. That's the law that says people should be paid overtime. I mean, that really regulates all workers. But when that law was passed over 80 years ago, um, Southern farmers did not want um, Black farm workers to be extended those rights. And so the farm workers were actually carved out of some of the most basic protections. Um, and it was because of racism. And, you know, who are agricultural workers in our country has changed over time. So now it is predominantly uh, a Mexican uh, Latinx workforce. But but the origins of those exclusions are really rooted in racism and from, you know, against Black farm workers. And unfortunately, you know, 
now, more than 80 years later, I can't tell you that there's been an improvement because that law hasn't changed. So farm workers continue to be excluded um, from many of the basic provisions. And, and that means that, for example, if you're working on a farm today and you work overtime, you won't get paid overtime. That doesn't exist for farm workers, except in some very narrow circumstances. Um, farm workers were also excluded from the National Labor Relations Act. Um, that That's the law that allows us to use unionize. So uh, when that law was passed, they said farm workers could not join unions. And, and that might be confusing to some people because you might be thinking about the United Farm Workers in California. That is a union. There are members of that union. And, and they, um, over time, Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez, they got the uh, a farm worker bill passed in California. And there have been a couple of other states where that's happened too. But that's state law. I'm talking about federal law. At the federal level, farm workers are still not allowed to unionize. And why does that matter? Because when you can join a union, then um, people can work together collectively to try to improve their workplace conditions. But um, that's been something that's been denied to farm workers. So there have been protections put in place for farm workers. Um, you know, most notably, there was a law that was passed in the 80s um, that we call APA the Agricultural Worker Protection Act. And that law was the law that said, okay, farm workers need to have some basic protections. Farm workers should know how much they're getting paid. Farm workers should know what their basic working conditions are like. Farm workers should be transported in vans and buses that have seat belts. They should live in housing that actually provides them with a bed and doors and, you know, very, very basic things. But it, it wasn't until the 80s and, until that law was passed. So what if someone uh, got a job at like, you know, to be a farm worker and then they get there and there is no seatbelts and there wasn't a bed? Like, let's say that like the employer is in violation of that. What would a what what would a farm worker have to do to like enforce that law on their worker? Would they have to go find a lawyer? Would they, I mean, is there an HR department on these farms to go be like, this doesn't seem right. It just, it seems like if you're someone who, uh, it's, it feels David and Goliath that there would be like one worker or, you know, a couple workers who could be up against this like very well-funded, like long-standing employer. Like, does, does that happen? Yeah. I mean, back in the day, Hiring looked a lot different in that, you know, it would be like your local farmer who was hiring someone that they knew from town. And so that there was a relationship there and people knew how to complain if something was not going well today. I mean, we have to say, you know, so that people understand that more than half of farm workers in our country are undocumented. Um, many of them are recruited by labor contractors. Um, some of them who I've met as I've done outreach to camps, they don't even know where they are in the country. They don't know what state they're in, you know, because they are taken to those places as migrant workers. So there is a huge um, separation often between the worker and the farmer. And the farm workers often don't know about the HR departments, right? They don't know where they would even go to try to make a complaint directly to the farmer lots of times. And so their main point of connection is with the labor contractor uh, or a crew leader. And um, that person is the person they rely on to tell them where they're going to live, to tell them where they're going to work work, you know, which rows in particular they're going to work in, et cetera. And unfortunately, often those are the people who are exploiting the workers as well. Um, and so there's lots of reasons why workers are not able to complain about not having a seatbelt or having poor working conditions. Um, yes, there are mechanisms that when a worker um, finds out about their rights and, and maybe has contact with a, a, a local lawyer or a, an organization. There, there are mechanisms to protect workers. However, the first question is, does a farm worker in our country feel safe enough to be able to actually exercise their rights? And unfortunately, the answer is often no, because they're afraid that they're going to be um, turned over to the police or immigration is going to be called on them or they're going to be retaliated against by the crew leader. And so, unfortunately, that is the first obstacle that we have to overcome, which is the real fear that there will be something bad that will happen to workers who try to assert their rights for better conditions. 
once workers are able to make a decision about whether that's something that they feel that they can do, I mean, so courageously, like so bravely when they make the decision to do that, um, you know, that's where our work comes in. Our work is to try to make sure that we are connecting with farm workers by doing outreach to directly to camps or, you know, if there are seasonal workers who live in one community, you know, to the, to the daycares and the laundromats and the soccer fields and all the places where we do outreach so that we can let people know that they have rights no matter what their immigration status is. And then when they need help, we want them to know that they can call organizations like ours or others who can then help them with the process of filing a complaint with the Department of Labor or making a complaint with like the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for um, discrimination. Um, you know, whoever it is that would handle the complaint, whether it be a federal agency or a state agency, the hope is that they can find um, advocates who can then support them and walk them through that process. Because for anybody, whether we're U.S. born um, and working in some other job or working in agriculture, our legal system actually isn't always that clear or easy to follow. So having advocates who can help with the process is really important. Thank you so much for that. Well, it's not a gorgeous situation, but such a succinct answer. And I think that's part of what I was getting to with the David and Goliath thing is that like, I, I didn't articulate it as well as you did, but it's like, I was thinking that like, is there undocumented workers you would think that there is? And then like, are they being like, you know, kind of harassed or like feared into silence? And I think especially in the Trump administration, when you had so much like this, all these ice hires and all of these things happening, I was just, I mean, actually I have chills on my legs thinking about the environment that a lot of these people probably found themselves in. And here's like another thing that I think that I've learned just generally in adulthood in America is that like a lot of the systems that we have are intentionally designed to be so vast and so big and so hard to navigate to make things harder for people and to keep systems and power in place. I think we see that in so many different like areas of industry. I, I truly believe that our immigration system is so broken. We need a path to citizenship. We need a path to safety for people that have been living in this country. Like it, it, it is so un-American to think about like the, the racism at play in like the Cuba policy versus like everyone else and how that was it, you know, for decades and decades going on. And there's just been so much, um, racism and confusion. And so when you think about immigrate, like immigration has been set up as a thing to like not be able to navigate. If you think about getting, how do you pay a speeding ticket? How do you do any of these things? Okay. But let's think about being from a different country and then trying to like deal with immigration. It's, it's such, an intense, huge process to navigate. So you have all of these Fox News watching people saying like, well, I don't have a problem with immigrants, just get in line. And I think that one thing that I've learned through this podcast is that like, there is no line. There's there, no line. There's no line. There is no fuck. Show me where the immigration line is, please, so that we can go show people. So this is kind of a twofold question. It's like, you have this, you know, air quote, immigration problem, like on one hand that, you know, like gets talked about in the media and gets talked about as this like thing. But then it's like, well, what's driving that? People want to eat. People want to do this. People want to use the labor, but then they don't want to like, you know, create a safe space for the people doing the labor. So people think that this issue is like in a bubble or like, but actually Americans are kind of on both sides of driving the issue in the first place. And there's totally so much. Right. So it's like, so, so that was kind of the first thing. I just want to make sure that that was true. And then the whole IRCA and then labor contractors, how can a labor contractor legally go get a bunch of folks and then not help them. And then can like, how does this go down? Who are these yeah. labor contractors and who are they working for? Yes. So many good questions. Okay. So first of all, there's always been this tension, as I said, about how we perceive immigrants who are working in agriculture. When we need them, we make the system very easy to use. And when we decide that we don't care or don't uh, want to pay as much attention to them, we make it incredibly difficult. And, you know, to your point about immigration and the system being broken, it was designed this way. It was designed to work for certain people and it was designed to make things more difficult for others. And that is just the truth. And um, you know, and if you look back at even just the program 
programs where workers were brought in to work, it was because we had a demand. We needed workers. We needed people to continue to pick those crops. And so then we made a system, created a loophole for that to work. Um, You know, first, I think it's really important for listeners to understand that, you know, I've been doing work in this community, in my community, since I was 14 years old. So for many years, and I've spoken to thousands of farm workers across our country. Many of them are are immigrants. Many of them are undocumented. And what they tell me is, first of all, if they didn't have to leave home, they wouldn't because they want to be home with their families and in their countries. Second, if there was a process for them to follow to be able to come to the United States legally, they would want to follow that process, but they don't understand it and they don't know how to access it. And sometimes the conditions in their countries are such that they are pushed out of those countries. And so they come to the United States, sometimes seeking asylum, sometimes as refugees. So you know, the narrative that we have about immigrants in our country and how they arrive and why they're here and, and what their intentions are is completely fault. It's completely flawed. And, um, and it is not true at all to the experience of the immigrants who I have known and worked with and served over the many years that I've been doing this work. They are painted as evil people, as bad people, as takers. And that is just simply not true. Um, Now we have a a reliance on more guest workers. Many of those guest workers are coming from Mexico, but they're also coming from other countries. And it's not just in agriculture, it's also in other industries too. And um, there are recruiters who go to to those countries and they recruit workers on behalf of farmers or whatever industry that they're going to be working in. Um, There are laws that say that these recruiters, they have these contractors need to be registered. You know, there has to be something called a work order in order to bring workers. Um, there's a process that farmers have to go through in order to be able to bring guest workers. They first have to exhaust um, advertising to make sure that the local workers are not available. And so there's an entire process that's been set up to do this. I would imagine, though, that it's like probably easy for the um, companies or like the like the farm owning people to like air quote exhaust the advertising like it, I mean isn't I would think that there just feels like there's probably some dishonesty there where they could say like oh we did that we took out the ad and is that a thing yeah I mean they, they would say no um but yes there is a, a process for them to be able to advertise it in the local newspaper or to be able to send it to the local you know jobs department etc um and so what we see now is more and more people are saying that they don't have workers and so therefore they're going to find workers to come through the guest worker programs. Um, And they're often talking to Congress about relaxing the requirements so that it's easier. And for those of us who, who do this work, we say, you know, these workers are already work. Many of them are coming in guest worker programs. They are completely isolated and they are working in slave-like conditions today. You know, they are extraordinarily vulnerable to exploitation. And so we cannot make the system any easier for people to be able to bring workers because that could be detrimental to the workforce. And, um, but on the other side of the coin, there are workers who do want to come as guest workers because the conditions are so bad where they're living that they need that opportunity. And so I think most of us who are doing this work, we're not necessarily saying abolish all of those programs because we understand both sides of the, of the story, but what we're saying, if we're going to have those programs, just like any other program in this country, it needs to be just. And people need to have avenues to be able to raise concerns and they need to have somebody that they can report their complaints to. And they certainly cannot be treated uh, like slaves. They certainly cannot be subject to human trafficking, which is something that we see. Can you get into that? Like, I mean, I have a million more questions, but I think so human trafficking, that's like one of the many things that can result from these like exploitative, um, horrific working edition things. So what would that look like? Like someone comes to be a guest worker, the conditions are very bad. And then like there's someone who within there's like, hey, I have a better job for you. And you could potentially be sold into like some sort of like human trafficking situation. Well, human trafficking can look very different. I mean, depending on the context, I've I've represented people who have been victims of human trafficking. In fact, Norma, who's right here on my wall, um, she um, was brought to the United States as a guest worker to work in Florida. And 
um, her situation was such that she and a group of other women were working on a particular farm and the um, company had them all um, living on the, the company premises and they were locked in so they couldn't get out of the premises unless the crew leader or somebody from the company took them out. And eventually one of the, her coworkers actually scaled a wall and escaped and that's how they were able to get help. So we see situations like that where people are brought in and they're physically constrained to a particular area and, and they are not allowed to, to freely move they're, They don't sometimes their visa and their other documents they're given in order to enter into the country, they're taken away from them. And so the, the crew leaders or contractors or whoever it is, because um, sometimes the, the company's directly involved, they have complete control over where they work, where they sleep, you know, their overall mobility. And if they were to get caught without those documents, then immigration could consider them undocumented and they could get put into immigration detention and eventually deported. So that's like one context. Um, we certainly, and, and those are for, for guest workers. I mean, we certainly see situations in which um, workers come into the country and they believe they're going to be doing one job and then they ultimately are, um, forced to do a different job or additional jobs than they'd expected. And then you have the situation of individuals who come into the United States and, um, you know, they pay a coyote to cross into the U.S. And then sometimes they get put into these safe houses um, where they, where we've seen situations in which they are sold. I've represented a woman who had a situation like that. So it, the situation is, is variable. Right. And um, there isn't just one uh, clear cut uh, example of what that looks like. Human trafficking can take many different forms. But in the case of guest workers that come to the U.S. where a recruiter went to their country to bring them on a visa, the most common situation that we see is that the visas um, and those other documents that they rely on to be here and to show that they're here illegally, they're taken away from them. They're, you know, enclosed in a particular space. They're not able to freely move. And the other thing is that the visa, um, whether they're trafficked or not, that visa is tied to that employer. So if somebody's working under bad conditions, it's not like they can just quit and then go get a different job because their ability to be in the United States legally is tied to that particular employer that they're working. So with. making a claim against the employer could like cause the employer to be like, oh, you're not working for me anymore. Your visa's linked and then you have to leave. That's right. And that also could mean, um, you know, one of the biggest fears that exists for guest workers as well as all workers is that if they take some action against the um, company, that they will be considered a bad worker, a problematic worker, and that they will then um, lose their ability to come back and work at all because the, the company or the crew leader will tell other people, oh, that's a problematic worker. We can't hire that person. And so that's another reason people don't complain because they don't see it just as terminating the relationship with that particular employer or crew leader. It could potentially mean the end of their ability to work um, in agriculture at all, or to come back to the United States on a guest worker visa at all. So because unionizing is still illegal for farm workers federally, like nationally. So you could maybe have a union in California or you could have like in some of these other states, but whether you're in California or wherever, like you're not, you're not allowed to be paid overtime. Yeah. So, so there are states across our country that have passed bills that allow workers to get paid overtime. New York is the most recent one. Just a couple of years ago, they passed their farm worker bill of rights and farm workers are able to get paid overtime there. Able to or required to? Like, do the people have to, like once they document their overtime, like the employers have to do it? That's right. Okay, yeah, good. by law in cool. New York, in New York. Um, but in their other states too, like Oregon and California. But um but under federal law, under the FLISA, overtime is not required for farm workers, except for in very specific situations, which maybe are too nerdy to get into right now. But if you're in Texas or Arkansas or like one of these like states who has farm workers but doesn't have these like laws that only these like very liberal states have passed, like you don't get these protections as a farm You could. Oh. You could. This is the this is the problem when you talk to a lawyer because then we're like, well, maybe you could. So, um, so for example, I did a case in Florida on behalf of a group of workers, and they were um, 
some of the workers were picking vegetables for, for a particular company, and then they were packing the vegetables for that particular company. And they were working, you know, a lot of hours every week, definitely uh, enough to get them overtime. In that situation, they're not entitled to overtime because they are packing the produce that that farm grew. But the case hinged on the fact that in addition to those crops, that particular farm was bringing in crops from other farms and they were using their packing shed to pack those products. And so their workers were packing what was grown on that farm and what was grown on other farms. And so in that situation, those workers were entitled to overtime because they were packing produce that was um, that was harvested on another farm. So there are circumstances under which farm workers might be entitled to overtime depending on the facts. But generally, no, they're not entitled to overtime. So I hate that I'm using like Orange is the New Black as like a reference point for this one thing that I'm about to ask, but it's like how I learned about it. So in the last, well, if you were really, okay, whatever, don't use Orange is the New Black, Jonathan, you're doing it, you're growing as a journalist. So one thing that I learned is that like in the ICE system, it's kind of, or like in the, in like the immigration, like detention centers, it kind of looks at least on Orange is the New Black. Okay, I tried, but I, I ended up, okay. Uh, it looks kind of like mass incarceration in there. Like there's a bunch of beds. There's a bunch of like, you know, it looks real prison-y. So much yeah. like, you know, if you do get arrested, you're given a public defender if you can't afford one. If you're employer takes away your visa or if you you know leave your place and your worker took your visa and you get pulled over or whatever and you get put into this like in one of these like mass detention like immigration centers are you like guaranteed a lawyer to like deal with your deportation case are you like is do you have any rights from the government if you find yourself in one of these situations you're not guaranteed a lawyer what happens is that um there are legal organizations nonprofit legal organizations around the country that go into immigration detention centers and they do like basic know your rights trainings for people once they get detained. So they're, you know, on some regular basis during the week, there are lawyers that go in and they do these trainings. And then the, those who are detained, they can ask for help, right? They can tell people, tell the lawyers what their circumstance is to, to seek a um, representation or a referral. Or, you know, what's happened in, in my career, since for the majority of my career, I have been an attorney. Um, you know, I've had situations in which uh, clients or former clients um, will contact me when someone that, that they know has gotten detained and they'll say, you know, so-and-so is at this detention center. Can you help them? And, um, you know, so there are situations in which individual family members after someone gets detained or friends, they will contact lawyers that they know in the community and they will ask them to help represent the person that is detained. And, you know, and then people are able to either they either contact us directly for help or, you know, through their family, we're able to get in touch with them. But it isn't as if, you know, as soon as someone gets detained, they're then um, put in touch with a, a, an attorney that's from a list of attorneys that's going to take them on um, for representation. It doesn't work that way. And so what we see happen often with immigrants who are detained is that, um, you know, they don't know their rights and they don't Sometimes they don't speak the language to even understand what is being explained to them, what they're being asked to sign. So, for example, I worked on a situation in which um, many of the individuals were indigenous and spoke indigenous languages. They didn't speak Spanish. So even if the information was being told to them in Spanish, it wasn't their first language. And so they didn't understand. And so if they're being presented documents to sign in English or in Spanish, they don't understand those. And so um, so people unintentionally you know, sign away their rights. You know, they they might take what's called a voluntary departure and they might um, say that they're willing to be sent back to their country. It's very, very complicated. And, you know, I'm not an immigration attorney. I represented um, immigrant workers and worked on things like some human trafficking cases and cases on behalf of um, victims of of, of crimes, because much of my work has been on behalf of, of a farm worker with another women who have been victims of sexual violence at work and they're entitled to certain visas. So in that context, I've worked on those cases, but I'm not generally an immigration attorney. My hat is off to those who are immigration attorneys because the volume 
of cases that they have, the complexity of the law, you know, the the very specific facts that have to be presented because a worker whose visa was taken away from them, who, who then gets detained, like they might not have the, the knowledge or even the words to express to a, an immigration officer, the fact that they actually are here lawfully and they have rights, right? And so that is that responsibility falls on the immigration advocates. Their jobs are just immense and, and it's and really important, particularly, um, you know, is, during the Trump administration, we saw a huge uptick in um, action against immigrants, immigrant workers across our country. Um, and, you know, I know that the, the caseload for many of those immigration attorneys was was quite vast. So I want to go back to what you were telling us about Florida for just a moment and just reiterate to people that like, you know, I said like, so those workers were entitled to overtime. And you're like, well, you know, maybe, but I just want to really drive home to to our listeners that the lengths that these women had to go to was to obtain a lawyer, like find a lawyer, get a court date, like go through all of this stuff to just do what is basically right. Like if you're listening to this and you've ever worked overtime, did you have to sue your employer to get overtime? Did you have to go find like the the answer is most likely no. And so I just want to say that like, while even in some states, if they're, you know, it, it's just, it shouldn't be like this to the people who literally are putting like food on our table, you know, quite literally. And another thing that you said earlier was that a lot of these conditions are quite shocking. So um, one thing, does that, does that labor law mean that like, does every does everyone get minimum wage or is there a way that these employers can be like, oh, and minimum wage here is like three fifty or something? Like, can they yeah. just screw you out of wages? Well, okay. So here's something that we have to this this is a real talk moment that we have to have. There is the law that exists, and then there is the implementation or enforcement of that law. So there is what is required and should be, and there is what is. Okay. Hmm. And that matters a lot when we're talking about farm workers or other low paid workers, because yeah, they're entitled to minimum wage. They should be paid minimum wage for their work. Which is still too low, by the way, but yes. Which is still too, is still too low. Um, But we see farm workers who are being shorted all the time, who are victims of wage theft. You know, we see situations in which people work, you know, hours, weeks, and then they're not paid anything. Um, you know, in the case of farm worker women, who I've spent the majority of my career representing, um, it is still common today for farm worker women not to even get paid their own paycheck. Because what happens for women is that, that when they go to work with their husband or with their male family members, they aren't counted as workers. They're counted as part of the work of their male family members. So farm worker women could work alongside their husband or alongside their father or brother um, the entire time that those workers are working. And the the wages that they would have earned or the money is that they should have earned get paid to their male family member. So, um Yes, they're entitled to minimum wage and yes, they should be counted as workers. But unfortunately, I think because farm workers in our country still today are considered invisible, they they are they're not thought of as workers or frankly, as human beings. And the people who are taking advantage of them don't believe that they're going to do anything to enforce their rights, that they know that they're afraid. They know that they're not going to try to report the company because they don't want to be turned over to immigration. And so unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are willing to take advantage of them and do things like steal their wages or shorten their hours or not count all of the buckets that they picked or pay their wages to their male family member instead of paying the woman worker. Do we need to go one of those range rooms together and just break some fucking dishes for a minute? <laughs> Fuck me. So, yeah, every day I feel this way. I feel this rage. So one thing that you have done is you are one of the organizers behind Healing Voices, which is a new mental health initiative for farm workers. I think, you know, one of my questions was that I didn't even get to, but we're going to kind of get to it now, is that like, you know, do do labor conditions ever bear of like, do they ever have things like for, you know, mental health or like legal recourse or like, you know, to attain more physical safety or better working conditions? And the short answer is like, uh, 
if you can get a lawyer and if you're like very lucky and if you somehow like, you know, get to know, like it's it's just, it's a minefield of things for, for farm workers to navigate. So you have been doing this work for years and brilliantly so, if I may add, after this, you know, short time that we spent together, I'm just, I, I really have so many chills from just your advocacy and your just you, Monica, you're amazing. Um, what is the Healing Voices Initiative? And yeah, what that's the first one is what what is the Healing Voices Initiative? Yeah, so Healing Voices is a mental health project that we created in partnership with the Eva Longoria Foundation, the National Migrant and Seasonal Head Start Association, and the Latinx Therapy Network. And the reason that we created it, um, it's a first of its kind project, um, but we created it because during the COVID pandemic, our organization um, and our partner organizations, we were tracking what was happening in the farm worker community. You see, we knew that farm workers were going to be left behind during the COVID pandemic. So even though our country decided that farm workers were essential during this pandemic and started calling farm workers essential, the truth is, as we've talked about, the law doesn't reflect that they're that they're essential. They're not being treated like they're essential. Um, historically, have not been treated like they're essential. And during the COVID crisis, we knew that they were going to be left behind. And so Justice for Migrant Women um, moved to action. We created a pandemic relief fund and we started to have these regular conversations with farm workers about their situation and what they needed during the pandemic. And the thing that just kept coming up over and over again was the fact that they were extraordinarily stressed out, that they had great anxiety, that they were feeling depressed. Um, and so in every conversation as that was you know emerging as an issue, we just kept coming back to, you know, to our team and saying like, well, what can we do to try to, to fill this gap? Like, what is there that can help workers in this situation? And so, you know, National Migrant Seasonal Head Start Association was holding these town halls with us. And we said, well, let's try to figure out what we can do about the mental health issue. And so we decided to create this project, which is um, providing uh, mental health counseling therapy uh, two farm workers in Florida and California. That's where we're going to be doing the pilot. And um, the sessions will happen via Zoom. S some of the sessions will be clinical, meaning that they will have a therapist that is doing clinical work. Some of them will be non-clinical. Um, but all told, we're really focusing on four main areas. Uh, we're focusing on parenting, partnering, um, planting, and also on personal. And the project is is being set up in such a way that we really want to make sure that while the, um, you know, the new sort of methods behind therapy that might not be as familiar to the community because our community um, isn't accessing mental health because it, number one, it's really not available to us to get that kind of mental health support, but also there are taboos that exist around seeking mental health support. And so, um, it's taking these new concepts around therapy and it's also marrying them with a traditional organizing methods that we've always used. So for us, when we do our organizing work, doing small home meetings is something that is very much part of, of our work, you know? And so we're, we're creating these groups in such a way that they feel like one of those small home meetings where we're, we're doing the work um, using the, the clinical modalities. Um, the, the participants will be um, exposed to storytelling, their own storytelling and sharing. Um, they'll be doing meditation and breath work, uh, coloring and role playing, like lots of different tools and tactics are being used. Um, two of our colleagues um, through the Latinx um, Therapy Network have developed the curriculum that will be used. And, um, and this is a test because as I said, it's never been done before. So we will spend um, from mid-June to mid-October doing this first run with the curriculum and the groups that are being established. And then we will evaluate the program to figure out how we can scale it and how we can make it better. And eventually, hopefully, we'll be able to um, expand the project to other industries beyond agriculture. So that's an incredible initiative within Healing Voices. But I know Healing Voices is like multifaceted even beyond this, this pilot program. Yeah, so, okay. One thing that I didn't share that I think is really important, we talked about it kind of in the context of some of the questions, but, you know, the reason that we have these four pillars is because farm workers in our country have always experienced trauma because of the work that they do and the work conditions. So 
um, the situation for farm workers in our country is, yes, they're experiencing wage theft. Yes, they're not being uh, paid for all of their hours of work. They're living in bad housing conditions. They're being transported in vehicles that are not safe. But in addition to that, they're being exposed to pesticides. Mm. They are, um, you know, they are working around and with dangerous equipment. Sexual harassment is a major workplace problem for farm workers, particularly for farm worker women. Um, and so there are many, many, many stressors that already existed for farm workers pre-COVID. Now with COVID, there are these additional stressors about staying safe. Um, unfortunately, thousands of farm workers across our country have gotten COVID and more than 9,000 farm workers in our country have died of COVID that we're aware of. So the, the situation is such that farm workers have always needed this support, but they need it even more right now. And we understand that the groups that we will be doing are for a limited number of people. There are only about 100 people that will be able to participate in this pilot. Um, and we know that there are many, many, many who need it and want it. In fact, we're getting calls from people around the country saying, how can I participate? And unfortunately, we're limited right now in this pilot phase. Um, so we're thinking about ways to make the project reach beyond the 100 um, folks that will be participating. We've set up a website. Uh, on our website, there's a page that you can go to about healing voices, and there are tools that are going to be loaded there. So for example, each of those groups that are going to be conducted, the therapists at the end of the group will record a video, which is sort of like an outtake that will summarize the content and the conversations that have happened um, so that, that that can be available to other people mm. to, to watch and to learn from. Um, we're also going to be um, sharing information about other kinds of resources that people can get in order to um, help address some of the mental health stressors that they're, they're faced with. And, you know, we have a vision for growing this project beyond um, these groups, uh, these Zoom groups, as well as eventually, hopefully, in-person groups, and then even this page. But the other really, really important thing that I wanted to raise here is that mental health and work is not just an issue for farm workers. Every person who works in this country spends probably more waking hours working than in any other place where we spend in our lives. Many workers experience stress. People talk across industries about poor working conditions. You know, there are many workers who go to work and express that um, tension because, um, because they're being treated poorly by their boss or by their supervisor, et cetera. And so we know that it isn't just farm workers who need mental health support. It's all workers. And so one of the chief objectives of this project is to push the federal government, OSHA specifically, to create a new standard so that all workers across our country will get support for our mental health because our physical health, which is what OSHA predominantly focuses on right now, is certainly important, but our mental health is just as important. And both our physical health and our mental health also have a direct impact on our abilities to do our work. So the, the other big piece of this project is the advocacy with the federal government to create a new standard. Well, I wasn't smiling because of the content of what you just said, but I was smiling because you literally read my mind because my next question was about OSHA and what other government agencies can we, you know, lobby or advocate to step up and offer help? And, and how can we also put more pressure on OSHA to step in and fill this void of what's of, of just this hundreds of years of toxicity in the American workforce? It, it, I mean, but also I just want to point out that yes, it is all workers, but I can't think, um, Domestic work also comes up for me because that's something we've learned about that's also like very unprotected and like people that work in domestic work also have it. So we've, I learned a lot of, about that from Alicia Garza. Um, but, but these two both, I just want to say that like, yes, all workers deal with this, but there are some that deal with it way more and way more terribly. And I obviously don't need to tell you that, but this is for the listeners. Um, if you are, having chills on your thighs while you're listening to this or chills on your triceps while you're listening to this. And if your blood is at a 99.9, if you're feeling boiling, if you're feeling angry, how could you suggest for some of our listeners to get involved? Can people donate to um, Healing Voices? Can they, um, what can people do? How can they get involved? Yes. So OSHA is who we're focusing on. 
Um, I would say, you know, in terms of other agencies, we we also want to make sure that the folks who are in charge of the Office of Violence Against Women know what we're working on, because I see a correlation between this violence and other social ills, you know, this harm and other social ills. So we believe that if we can create this project and we can prove that it works, that it will also help in other ways, um, in other in other parts of our lives. And so we need, you know, agencies like that to, to be aware of it. But the focus is OSHA because OSHA is in charge of occupational health and safety. And we believe mental health should be viewed as an occupational health and safety issue. Um, so how do you get involved? First of all, we're building this project right now. You are at the very beginning of it. And um, I would say following our work, going to justiceforwomen.org, that would be the place to go to learn more about healing voices. Uh, you can donate to support the work there as well. But I would say sign up there to join our mailing list so that we can keep you informed of what the different action items are, because we will be sending um, letters to OSHA and doing other things by way of our advocacy to try to actually see this, you know, come to life, you know, beyond this pilot phase that we're doing. And, you know, Jonathan, to your point about certain workers experiencing um, more or different stressors, 100 percent, you know, low paid workers across our country, domestic workers, farm workers, restaurant workers, so many are experiencing extreme stress. And many of them have been frontline workers during this pandemic. And we know that some of the research shows that frontline workers have said that they are experiencing mental health issues because of the pandemic and the stressors that they've been under. Um, so it is our priority to ensure that this project gets scaled to serve low-paid workers. But we also think the government needs to step up and recognize that mental health should be a priority for all of us. Absolutely. Yes, I almost cussed, but then I decided not to. So then this is kind of random, but I am curious, and you'll I think you'll see why in my second question. But you'd said earlier that you're not an immigration lawyer, but hats off to immigration lawyers. What like what kind of lawyer did like what kind of law did you like what like what kind of lawyer are you? Because I because I want more people to be that kind of lawyer. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I started my career as an employment lawyer specifically focused on um gender discrimination and eradicating sexual violence. Like that's my actual area, you know? And, um, but I, I'm a civil rights lawyer. I'm a human rights lawyer. Okay. So then my second question now is going to make more sense is if you're a lawyer listening to this or you're like in law school and you haven't like decided what you want to do yet, or let's say that you like, you already did finish or if like Kim K is listening to this and she's like, I'm not sure which one I want to go into. How can like a dissatisfied lawyer who's like, I don't want to fight for these fuckers and like you know like if there's like some lawyer who's like doing something it's like not really like working towards like you know because I bet there's a lot of lawyers who probably like go to bed at night and just think like man this sucks like I want to do something better in the world like they don't want to like you know so like can lawyers like you know jump ship and like do like a and get involved in like a better kind of lawyering and like like would that be cool that would be cool right well, first, I mean, one, we need more lawyers doing social justice work and advocacy. And, you know, if you're a lawyer who who needs to continue working in a private firm or for the government or whatever it is that you're doing, um, that job is important. But we also need your pro bono hours so you can volunteer to work with some of the organizations that I've mentioned. Um, and certainly there are lots of ways that you can get involved with local legal services and, and even organizations like ours to donate your time. If it's not something that you can do full time. And I fully respect that not everyone can do um, public service work, uh, you know, public interest work full time for lots of different reasons. But for those who are thinking about what they want to do with their careers, I think we have to remind ourselves that there's just not one way to be a lawyer. And, you know, one of the things that I have been really fortunate um, to have for my own career is the ability to be a litigator and to be an organizer and to do policy and and to do advocacy and to do culture shift work, you know, and, and so I think we have to remind ourselves that as lawyers, we have really important skills that can be applied in different ways. There's not just one box that we fit into. And I would challenge anyone that is in law now or considering law to really think about the many ways that those skills can be applied and then put them to use and put them to service on behalf of the people who need so much help, like farm workers and all of the other workers who are being exploited across our country. 
Okay, so this is like a really out of left field final three questions in one, but (laughs) you have just really like inspired me so much. And I just, and also you don't have to answer any of them because it really is like it's off script, but I just feel compelled to ask because I spent an hour with you and like these, this is what came up. Is there any companies after your work that you just do not fucking buy food from? Like, is there someone who we should just that you won't get sued for slander liable or something, but is there someone who we should just not be fucking with in your experience? Okay. Well, yes, I do not want to get sued. And my first boss told me this because I actually used to boycott a lot. I mean, I used to basically not eat any fruits or vegetables for a long time because I was boycotting everybody. But my first boss told me that we need to buy the products because we need to make sure that those companies have the resources to be able to pay the settlements in litigation. So. We should think about it that way as well, because, you know, if there is an action against a particular company and they are sued, I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, people declare bankruptcy or something in the middle of litigation and then workers don't end up getting um, getting paid what they're owed. So I actually try to focus on using my voice and my energy to push those companies to do better. But I have as I've gotten older, have veered away from. Um, just the boycott strategy. Okay, so that was one of them. And then the other thing was, will you run for office? Because I would vote for you. I think a lot of people would vote for you. I just... Like, I just think that you would be such an incredible elected official. I really, I could see like a Governor Monica or like a Senator Monica or like a something major because I just think you're doing such incredible work. And I just had to say that. Thank you so much. I mean, I've been, I don't know what's in the future. We'll see. Um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and hopefully hopefully we're going to make a difference. You know, hopefully we'll be able to make change. And I know that electoral politics, like it's not the only way that you can be a change. I get it. But I'm just saying, I just feel like you are electable, honey. I just, <laughs> I, I want to vote for you. And I've only spent one hour and six minutes with you. I just, I just think you're incredible. So thank you so much for your work. So similar to people who you would never buy food from, And this is like another thing I learned about like uh, Democrats, like also from Alicia Garza is that like sometimes there's like a lot of like racism within the Democratic Party and it's like can be really problematic. So we really got to like, like continually put on our like critical thinking caps and like think, continue to think critically. But after your, the work that you've done, is there any political person who we think is cool, but is actually a fucker who we should not support? Like, is there anyone who's really pissed you off that we need to like, think fucking twice about it. And again, you don't have to answer because it's just, but just from our conversation, all the like incredibly genius things that you said, I just didn't, I just want to be doing what you're doing because I can tell you're doing like good stuff. And if there's something that you know that like, we don't know, is there someone who really, that we are that, like, that, I mean, cause I think I already know who sucks, but is there anyone who we thinks like think is major, but they actually aren't on shit. Okay. So I'm going to take a different approach to answering this question. I am going to answer you, but I'm taking a different approach. So, you know, people have always said to me about, you know, this party, or that party, you know, what do I think or what am I doing uh, about X, Y, and Z? And what I have said is this, as a litigator, I have sued um, Republican and Democratic administrations because it has been 80 years and farm workers still don't have the most basic rights. Unfortunately, I think everyone in Congress needs to do better when it comes to farm workers and some of our lowest paid workers. I mean, there certainly are political leaders who have um, stepped up and put it, put in important bills and, 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 and to them will be forever grateful. But I think that as a whole, our political leadership has not showed the kind of courage that is required for low paid workers like domestic workers or farm workers. And we need, we need them to understand that even if um, farm workers or domestic workers don't have billion dollar lobbies behind them, Right. Like some of the industries that that do have that kind of capital and have been using that capital to pressure political leaders not to take certain action. You know, maybe our communities don't have that, but our communities are literally doing life sustaining work that has value and is valuable. And that should be enough for people to take the action that is required and needed to do right by them. So in my book, until we see some major progress on the law when it comes to farm workers and other workers that have been excluded, I think they all need to do better. And you said you're based in Ohio. 
I think I you just accidentally made your case for like why you should definitely run for office because that's now two questions that you literally answered directly, but like in a better way. Like, wow, yes, obsessed. Okay, Ohio Congresswoman, Ohio Senator, <laughs> I feel it, I see it, I'm obsessed. Um, wow, that was such a good answer. You were like... Killing it with the good answers today. I think I feel complete. I think I feel like this is also like one of the best interviews we've done in like a hot minute. I feel like I learned so much. I have, I did three full pages of notes. That's a lot more than usual. Where can people follow you and, and your work? Okay. Like super directly. So, um, they can follow me uh, on Instagram at activist Monica Ramirez. And on Twitter, they can follow me um, at Monica Ramirez OH because I'm from Ohio. I'm based in Ohio. And um, the organization can be followed at Muhedex. I'm going to spell it because it's a little challenging. It's Muhedex Rising. And that's at, in, on Instagram and Twitter. So Muhedex is M U J E R X S Rising. Headaches rising, and um, that's where that's where we'll be. And that we're posting updates about healing voices. And if, if folks go to the website, they can also learn more there. Well, Monica, I just followed your Instagram. I'm obsessed. I think everyone listening to this also needs to follow it. Pay attention to the incredible work that you're doing. I'm so grateful for you for taking your time and being really patient with my questions and me. And you're just amazing. And I'm just so grateful to have met you. Thank you so much. And thank you for being curious. Thank you for for the, the conversation. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was lawyer and activist Monica Ramirez. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunsha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 